Amen. Thank you, Dr. Russ. As we go to Scripture this morning, let me just take a second and just remind us what, what we're doing as we gather this morning. Like So as we even gather as Christians in a church, some of the things we've already talked about and some of the announcements and scriptures that we've read. So there is a truth of the message of the gospel, the, the truth about what Christ has done for us as he came to this earth, as he died on the cross, as he rose again, and the fact that salvation is available to all that those who then turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, that they are now united to Christ. They have this new relationship of salvation with Christ. And then that reality of the relationship with God then gathers people into churches like-minded with other brothers and sisters. And, and, And the same truth of the gospel that gives us a relationship with God now gives us a relationship with brothers and sisters here in the church. And so we gather together. And I have a question. As we've been going through the book of Philippians, Paul has been letting people know about his situation, his circumstances. And now Paul is going to turn the tables and address the situations and circumstances of the Philippians in their context. So that truth that I described, of the gospel that gives us a relationship with God that we now live out in community with other brothers and sisters in the church. My question is this. How how seriously are we going to take the message of that truth? How seriously are we going to live out our faith, both in our relationship with God, but also in relationship with brothers and sisters in the church? Is this something we want to go all in on? like totally committed, the fact that lives are reoriented, churches are reshaped, uh, something that that with, with reckless abandon, we devote ourselves entirely to this truth that gives us a relationship with God. Or is it, is it something that we can, don't have to be as serious about? We can sort of pretend. We can see if there's some way to receive salvation from God and yet live the way we want to live, come to church every now and then just enough to make sure people know who we are and maybe we can appease God a little bit by serving here and there every now and then and dropping a few bucks in the plate and now somehow God is pleased with that and we don't really have to, with reckless abandon, pursue this truth that gives us a relationship with God and puts us in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Which one of those two options is Paul going to exhort the believers to? You can see I'm being facetious. It's going to be this one, right? It really is going to be a radical risk. It really is going to be something that's going to take an all-out effort. And that's where Paul's going to go. And as we think about that, I thought of this as Anna and I were talking through the sermon passage last night, and she reminded me of a story that she had heard. Uh, We're getting a little bit to the point our kids are growing up. We're trying to think about where should our kids, like, do we want to get them involved in sports and things like that? And what interest will read have and of course as a parent I grew up playing a lot of sports and didn't care too much and about physical safety or anything like that and I didn't play tackle football but I'm not I'm trying to think like should I my parents didn't know anything about football so they weren't going to push me in that direction Anna's family all grew up playing tackle football and you know it's like well man people get hurt in playing tackle football. There's risk, right? You know, like little kids could get hurt. Like what would happen if, if I let Reed do that and he gets hurt? Or, or worse yet, what would happen if he grew up and played for the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, that'd be like, there's risk involved in that kind of 
in that kind of event, so I don't know if you've heard about this. I don't know if you've heard about this. There are, there's a trend to move away from some of the non-contact sports, safer sports. I don't know if you've heard about this one. Competitive hobby horse racing. I think I've got a picture for you. Have you heard about this? This, um, this made the circuit last year, uh, and, and this is a legitimate thing in Finland. Uh, and I'm saying thousands of kids are, are, so I don't know if we have competitive hobby horse. I feel really bad if I'm mocking someone who is passionate about this, but I Googled competitive hobby horse South Jersey and I didn't come up with anything. I know we have horse farms, you know, we have people that actually ride horses and they jump horses over, uh, what do you call it, hurdles, right? And they, they even do the horse dancing or dressage or whatever you call that. And, uh, you know, it's like actually, well, there's a lot of money that goes into a horse. There's a lot of time that goes into a horse. And so thousands of kids in Finland, there was a YouTube video that had 30 million hits of a gymnasium packed with, with kids as they were running through the gymnasium, jumping them over. Somebody put, did a documentary on it. It says, says this, video clip packed a championship in Finland clocked over 30 million views showing teenage girls cantering gracefully around a course and flying across meter-high hurdles on stuffed horse heads mounted atop wooden sticks. The, 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 some of the comments that were on the video said this, after watching this, I feel like a normal person again. <laughs> Somebody else says, I used to do this around the bedroom when I was five. Today it's a sport. So uh, then, uh, even though there's humor and I jest, the, the lady who did the documentary, she said this. There is definitely a layer of humor to this activity. Uh, the hobby horseyists, that's all one word, they, the hobby horseyists themselves see that too, and they don't take themselves too seriously. So you see, you see this idea that like, all right, here's this, this, a whole bunch of people have gathered around this idea that they don't want to go to all the expense. Think about it. All three of my kids could each have like five horses in the back of the minivan, and if one of their necks broke, duct tape. I mean, we just keep going, right? It, like, so there's a benefit. There's an upside to it, right? That it wouldn't take time. You don't have to feed them. The chores are easier. The kids make and sew their own. It's a cool thing, apparently. <clears throat> not sure if it'll make it in the States or not. But I don't know. As, as, you know. If we were going to want Reed to learn how to ride a horse, I'm not thinking this is the competitive sport we'll sign him up for. I think it'd be a whole lot better to like actually, in some of the horse farms around here, you, know, you can actually go ride a real horse you know, with a real helmet and actually jump and learn how to feed them and all this kind of stuff. And like, There's the two differences. One is pretend, right? And again, if there's hobby horseyist enthusiasts here, my intent was not to mock the parenting decision of that rather than to say, one is pretend, one's not really real, and though it's easier, there's less risk, there's less consequence, the other horse riding is actually real, it's genuine, it's a lot harder, it's not as easy, there's much more risk, and as we go to scripture this morning, as we go to Philippians chapter 1, and we're trying to think through, okay, this message of the gospel that puts us in right relationship with God, and puts us then into a community with other brothers and sisters called the church, there's two different options we could go through with this. We could take it very, very seriously, where we live out our faith, where we seriously obey the commands of Scripture, 
Or we could kind of try to skate by. And this one is tempting. And a lot of Christians in the world today are trying to skate by with as minimal risk, as minimal effort as possible. And Paul's going to write here in verse 27, and he's going to just take that idea and blow it out of the water. He wants them to see, listen, there are some really high expectations of those who call themselves followers of Christ. This relationship with God that gives us uh, an eternal life with God, it makes us citizens of his heavenly kingdom, right? And, And therefore, because of that, there are high expectations that go along with that citizenship. It's not something that we can skate by on easily. And he wants the church at Philippi to see this, and he needs them to stick together and to stay united because there's a real battle going on with the world out around them. And he's got this truth for them. If you're taking notes, here's the one thing that I want you to get from the scripture as we go through it this morning. Here's the one thing that I think is important for us to walk away. In these four verses, Paul's going to give instructions to the Philippian church and it's this. As Christians, as as Shawnee Baptist Church, as churches, here's what we need. We need to unite and fight together. We need to unite and fight together. We're going to go through the passage and explain, well, where's the uniting come from and, and how is it that we're fighting and who is it that we're fighting against and why is it that we need to stick together? But this is what Paul is going to explain, that we as Christians, as Shawnee Baptist Church, as churches in the world today, we need to unite and fight together. Let's go to the book of Philippians, which Dr. Russ read, and we're going to start here in verse 27. And here's what Paul says. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word only that starts this sentence, you get the idea that, that Paul is saying, listen, this, here's the only thing. Here's, here's the thing of greatest importance. Here's the one main thing that Paul wants them to catch. So let's, let's make sure we remember where we're at in the context of the letter, because this is kind of a hinge verse or a, a pivot in his train of thought that he's like, after everything he said, it's like, all right, only this. Make sure you understand this. Whatever happens is the way the one translation was. Here, here's the one thing you got to grasp. So we've been going through chapter one, and remember there was an initial greeting where Paul explained that he was confident that God was going to bring to completion the good work that he started. And then in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. So since verse 12, he's been talking about himself. He's been explaining that all of the hardships that have come upon him have really been serving to advance the gospel. These believers at the church in Philippi had heard that he was in prison. They knew some of the bad things that were happening to him, and so they sent a gift to encourage him, and he says, listen, what's gone, what's happened to me has really served to help push the message of the gospel forward, and so he doesn't want them to be discouraged because he himself is not discouraged because other people are hearing about Christ even through his imprisonment. Even people who are mis- that are maligning him with bad motives 
motives are still proclaiming Christ, so he doesn't even worry about that. And he wants them to know then. He goes on and says, listen, I've made this the entire focus of my life. Verse 20, 21 in there. To live is Christ. He's the sole central focus of my life. And so even if I depart, then meaning if I die in imprisonment, I will be with Christ. That has been the focus of my life. However, for your sake, I think I'm going to get to come to you because I'll be able to help you in your faith. And he's been saying, listen, don't be worried about me and my circumstances. And you get to verse 27. It's like now he wants to switch the tables and start talking to the Philippian believers. Now he's going to start speaking into their context. So listen, guys, it's only this, all right? Whether I come and see you or if I remain absent, here's the one central thing. Here's, this is the first command in the letter. And in some ways, he's going to take the rest of the letter to keep explaining what he means by this phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters there at the church in Philippi, your life needs to be lived in such a way that it is worthy of this message of the gospel of Christ. The the, the truth, the, the, the message of the gospel is very simply this, that you and I are sinners and we're separated from a righteous and holy God. Because he's good, because he's perfect and has never sinned, because he made everything, he's in charge of how life works, and yet you and I rebel and reject his authority. And so because of that, we're separated from God for eternity. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on the cross, to take the punishment for sin so that any who would turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Christ would find salvation and eternal life. So that one day they would spend eternity with God in heaven. But now, after they've accepted that message of salvation, now their life here on earth is supposed to reflect that. Now they're supposed to live in a manner that is worthy, that lives up to that message of the gospel. Make sense? And Paul says, listen, this is everything because, because I want you as a church to live in a manner that's worthy of that message, worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, let your manner of life. What Paul is saying, he's using one word that describes, uh, that, that we translate with several words. We say, uh, let your manner of life be worthy Uh, Let your manner of life is one word, which literally means to live as citizens or behave as citizens. So what Paul is telling, he's using a word from which we get our English words, politic. Uh, He's using a word that, that helps them understand their citizenship. And he's saying, you as as Christians are now citizens of that message that has given you a relationship with God. You, you are not just Roman citizens. You are citizens of this new kingdom that, that God's that the salvation from Christ establishes. I've got some verses from the book of Colossians that I want you to see. In Colossians chapter 1, this is the way Paul describes it there. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the truth of what salvation does. And he says to them that through what Christ has accomplished, through what God has accomplished in salvation, he, being God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
son. So we're not talking millennial kingdom here. We're talking this different kingdom. Not, we're no longer in the domain of darkness. Now we are in the, the, the kingdom of the beloved son. Because of what God has accomplished, now we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And Paul is telling them, listen, you need to behave that way. You need to live in light of this new reality. We, we think of where we live. We don't capture all of this as, as Western individualistic Americans. We are so individualized that it's very difficult for us to grasp the, the connected independence interdependence that the ancient Greek person would have understood when they heard Paul say, live as citizens or behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. For the ancient Greek, where they lived, you would have think of it almost as a, a cooperation, that where they lived, there were responsibilities and expectations placed on them as a citizen of that locale that was then expected that they would live in such a way for the betterment of that location. And, and we're going to pick this up again when we get to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul uses the noun form of this word. Right now, he's using a verb, live as citizens. When we get to chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to say, your citizenship is in heaven. And we're going to understand, I'm going to dig further into it as to why even there in, in Rome, they would have understood this. They, uh, they, excuse me, they were in Philippi, which is, was a colony of Rome, and it would have pressed deep into them to understand why. One, one commentator says it this way, to the ancient Greek, the state was by no means merely a place to live. It was rather a sort of partnership formed with a view to having people attain the highest of all human goods. Here in the state, the individual citizen developed his gifts and realized his potential not in isolation, but in cooperation. Here, he was able to maximize his abilities not by himself or for himself, but in community and for the good of the community. And when the Philippian believers heard what Paul said, that they need to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, they would have just pressed upon them the reality that all of their life needed to live up to the expectation of this message that they proclaimed of faith in Christ. That it did not work to say, I believe in this message over here, but have a life that didn't reflect it. And Paul says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, you've got to behave in such a way, live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he goes on and says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, because at this point he's unsure whether he's going to get released back to them or whether he will remain in prison. But he says, regardless of what happens, I want to hear that you are standing firm, that you're united in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So not only are they supposed to be living lives that are worthy of the gospel, they need to be united together for the faith of the gospel. That they're, they're working together side by side with one spirit and one mind. There's debate as to whether the one spirit is a reference to Holy Spirit or if it's... Uh, a like-minded spirit, but certainly as you get to that uh, second part where he says with one mind, he's literally saying with one soul, with unity of spirit that these believers would be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And to picture this, this reality that on the individual sense, their life needs to be lived worthy of the gospel. 
But with the other believers there in the church, they need to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word striving side by side, it's only used in two places in scripture. And what Paul is referring to here, they would have understood that word to, it's the word where we get athlete or athletics. They would have understood it as striving together the way an athletic team unites together for a common purpose to accomplish a common goal against a common opposition. One of the commentators says it this way, that that, uh, it refers to an athletic contest in which a group of athletes cooperates as a team against one another, working in perfect coordination against a common opposition. And so they would have heard this and read this and said, here's what we need to do. We need to unite together. We need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. If you have been on a sports team, if you understand what that's like, that that you unite together, you fight through difficulty for the purpose of a common opposition, and you are striving together to accomplish that message. Well, what's the purpose of the church? To glorify God by making disciples. As believers in the church are built up, as unbelievers outside the church are converted, Paul is saying you're supposed to be striving side by side, united in that purpose for the faith of the gospel. Do you see why it's important that he says you need to unite together? And right here, he's largely focusing on the inside. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to go to a moment of application here at this point, even in the middle of our text. Remember who Paul is writing to. He is not telling Christians in general to unite together for the faith of the gospel. He is telling the church at Philippi to unite together for the faith of the gospel. He's writing this letter to them, and think of what it would have been like in that day. There were no other churches in Philippi. It's not as if there were other Christians in Philippi. Paul is saying, listen, everybody that is a believer in Jesus Christ, there in Philippi, unite together, stick together in the church at Philippi, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so I want us to think about the way that relates to our concept of membership in New Testament churches today, in, in, excuse me, in our churches today. I've said before that you won't see the word membership in the New Testament when it talks about churches. And however, you, you also cannot accomplish everything that the New Testament expects of churches without something like what we try to use membership to define. Does that make sense? Paul is writing to the believers in the church at Philippi, and he says, strive together, stick together the way an athletic team was. If they didn't want to stick together, there was no other option. You didn't go up to someone on the street in Philippi and say, do you go to the church at Philippi? No, I go to First Baptist in Philippi. Their music is a lot better. There was no option like that for the believers in Philippi. Either you were on Team Jesus or you were not. Does that make sense? And so Paul is writing to them and he says, stick together. I get it. I get it that membership in our day and age is not popular. It just isn't. Uh, we, we don't like those kinds of structures and things. I cringe every time I go to ShopRite and Murphy's and they want my phone number to get 75 cents off a bag of potato chips. I cringe. I don't like it. It's like, why, why do you, who do you, you need to, well, I don't, you don't have any re- relationship to me, right? And, and that's our understanding of this, right? The, the, and, and, 
And yet, when I see the, okay, 75 cents, all right, I'm willing to do it. There's a payoff. There's a trade-out. You know, I get some benefit. There's a perk. There's a privilege, right? I mean, that's why we would, you know, uh, that's why you, you pay the gym membership fees. You're a member at the gym because you pay a certain amount of money and you, and you uh, get, receive services in return. And unfortunately, that concept of membership very quickly bleeds into the church. And we tend to think that membership is about perk and privilege rather than what it's really about. It's about a relationship. This relationship that we have with God that then puts us into relationship with other believers and now we have responsibilities with those other believers. And Paul is saying, listen, every, every one of you that's right there in the church at Philippi, strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Like one team with a common purpose and it helps us understand. The, so we're in this together. We're united. We want to unite together for the faith of the gospel because we don't... We don't want anything to get in the way of that. And he says, only, only this, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I, I, I want to know that, that you are living your lives as citizens worthy of the gospel. And I want you to strive together, united for the faith of the gospel. You've got this quote by Kenneth Wiest in your bulletin speaking on what that means in Philippians 1:27 and he says this it teaches us that Christians are to be citizens of heaven having a heavenly origin and a heavenly destiny with the responsibility of living a heavenly life on this earth in the midst of ungodly people and surroundings telling sinners of a savior in heaven who will save them from their sins if they but trust him and this is some of the expectations that we are now citizens no longer of the kingdom of darkness, but we've been transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and now we're supposed to live that out. And so we need to unite together. And, and Paul's instructions in verse 27 is, you there in the church together, make sure you stay united. And then in verse 28, he's going to flip again just a little bit of the point of his perspective, and he's no longer just saying unite together on the inside. He's going to explain to them why they need to be united on the inside because it affects what their church does on the outside. Listen to this. You, um, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now the here that I still have. And so Paul says, listen, you need to unite together because, listen, I don't want you to be frightened by anything of your opponents. The, the church at Philippi was facing opposition. And we don't have a lot of details of what that opposition was, but, but this opposition from the outside, Paul is saying, listen, you need to be united on the inside because I don't want you to be frightened. That word frightened has the idea of being like timid or fearful that you would be shocked or startled. And Paul is saying, listen, you've got opponents who are opposing this message of the gospel going forward, and I don't want you to be frightened. You don't need to be frightened because you are fighting this battle, so to speak. You're engaged in the same conflict that, you, that I had. You saw me have it, and now you hear that I still have this, and you're right there with me fighting together, and I don't want you to be frightened. I don't want you to be startled in anything by your opponents. 
Like I said, we don't know for sure what what was going on in this opposition from the outside. This is far more than just, oh, somebody in the church doesn't like me. Or, um, you know, oh, we as as a church have this little opposition, like some zoning procedural thing. If you ever hear of churches going through building projects, it's like, oh, we can't get this permit that we need. But we don't want to be frightened of our opponents. Not what Paul's talking about. It's not that kind of stuff. This is this is kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light stuff. These are things that hold back the clarity and the advancement of the gospel. This, this would be opposition such that life and death is on the line. Opposition such that we haven't been familiar too much yet with this point in our Western church, and yet we wonder, is the day coming where there will be increased persecution? It could be something that would mean loss of job or financial income, something to that extent, but certainly even the persecuted church and the reality that millions of our brothers and sisters face around the world. And Paul says, listen, I don't want you to be frightened when you face that kind of opposition. You don't need to be frightened. And Paul says, you watched me go through this conflict. You hear, I still have it, and I realize that you right there are still engaged in the middle of it, and I don't want you to be frightened. You don't need to. And as you face this boldly, it will be a clear sign to your opponents that they are headed for destruction and that you have salvation as a gift from God. Well, what did, if we were to use our sanctified imagination, though we don't know for sure what they were engaged in, we do have record of what Paul went through 10 to 12 years before he wrote this book in Acts chapter 16. If you would like to turn to Acts chapter 16, you don't need to. I'm going to trace some of the events before we get to these verses. Let me tell you what leads to these verses. When you go to Acts chapter 16, Paul shows up here on the missionary journey. He makes it into Philippi. Lydia was one of his first converts. And so you see that story. And as the church begins to grow, uh, I think um, you, you would see some of the believers start to gather. And God is doing neat things there in Philippi. And then you get to verse 16. And there's a, a young slave girl who has the... Um, owners who are making money off of her ability to uh, fortune tell. And so they're using her for economic gain and Paul and Silas show up and they cast out the evil spirit that is possessing her. And so the people of the city, important people in the city, get really upset at these new guys who bring this message about Christ and they say, listen, these Jews are upsetting our city. Even though Paul was a Roman citizen, they bring Paul to the, the leaders of the city and they there's this public uh, unjust trial and they are beaten. They are thrown in prison. And you would look at this and you here's some of the opposition to the gospel that Paul faced while he was there engaged in a conflict in Philippi. And so Paul is in prison and about midnight they're praying, it says in verse 25 of Acts 16. And there's this great earthquake, right? And so the Philippian and, and, and chains are broken. The prisoners are free. And the Philippian jailer who was charged with the responsibility of protecting every one of these prisoners realizes there's an earthquake. Surely all of these prisoners have escaped. And so the Philippian jailer is about to take his own life realizing what is the, the, how much trouble he's going to be in. And Paul calls out says, no, we're all still here. And this is unfathomable to the Philippian jailer, right? And so what does Paul do? He shares Christ with him. And the Philippian jailer is then converted. So here's Paul in jail. He's not throwing himself a pity party. He's praying. God opens the doors, I probably would have run for my life 
And Paul says, maybe I can convert the jailer, right? Cool opportunity from God. And so he's fellowshipping with the Philippian jailer. And then word gets sent to the Philippian jailer from these leaders that just get those guys out of here, right? Send them on their way. Get, just get them out of the city. Let them go free. If I had a second chance at freedom after the Philippian jailer was converted, I probably would have run for my life. And Paul hears that the, the, the leaders have sent this message through secrecy that they're allowed to leave. And here's what Paul says. Listen to the boldness. He's not frightened even a little bit because he knows that the hope of the gospel is a clear sign of their destruction and of his salvation from the Lord. And Paul says to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No! Let them come themselves and take us out. And the passage keeps going, and he says this in verse 38. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So he does finally leave the city. But look at the boldness that Paul has. And it's this kind of boldness that then causes him to write, and he says, listen, you watched me in this conflict. You hear that I'm still in prison, still fighting these kinds of battles, and you yourselves are now engaged in this same conflict. And I want you to stay united on the inside because you're fighting the battle on the outside and I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction but of your salvation and that salvation comes from God, he says. In verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. That's uncomfortable to wrap my mind around. I understand that my salvation is a granted gift from God. Freely given is what that word means. So my salvation is a free gift from God, but the opposition and the suffering that I face as I proclaim that message, that that too is a gift from God. That's hard to fathom. We looked at this a little bit more a few weeks ago when Paul was talking about even in his own suffering, in his own opposition to the gospel message. This does not mean that God endorses sin. God will not give this a free pass. Those that are involved in the kingdom of darkness and opposing the message going forward of the kingdom of the beloved son, God will, uh, they will be judged for those efforts. And yet Paul says in this verse that even that suffering in the face of opposition to spread this message is part of the gift that has been granted to them. And Paul wants to encourage them and he tells them, listen, you, you're engaged in this same conflict that you saw that I had and now you hear that I still have. And he wants them to get this. Look, you need to stay united on the inside. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel and the expectations that the gospel places on you. As a citizen of the kingdom of the beloved son, now there are expectations of us that we need to live our life in such a worthy manner and stay united on the inside, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel because we are also fighting together. Not, not fighting together inside. It's uniting inside so that we can fight together to advance the message of the gospel to see new disciples built up, 
current disciples encouraged, converts for the faith made, and to realize, well, now we, we as a church, we need to unite and fight together. And how important this is for Shawnee Baptist Church, even at a time like this. You see, sadly, too, too many churches. It's too easy to, to slip into fighting on the inside, rather than realizing we're uniting on the inside around the person of Christ so that we can fight with the opposition on the outside to advance the message of the gospel forward. And so certainly in a time of pastoral transition, that, we want that to be our focus, right? That as we wait for God's leading and direction, we say we're uniting around the purpose of Christ. We want to live lives worthy of the gospel so that we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel because there's a world out there in darkness that needs this message of the gospel and we want to take it to them. We want to strive side by side for, for that and, and there will be nothing that will frighten us of that because we know where our hope is founded. And it's found in the person of Christ and in his gospel message. So what do you want for your life as a Christian? What do you want for Shawnee Baptist Church? Do, do you want to live this all out, committed, all in, we're totally going to go for it, like live our lives worthy as, as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because sadly, the temptation is way too easy to just think, I'll just kind of get the bare minimum in so that people n n know maybe that I follow Christ. Maybe I'll show up every now and then. Maybe I, I won't deal with the sin in my life. Maybe I won't live as I should. Maybe my life isn't worthy of the gospel of Christ. Maybe it's just kind of so-so. I like the people at church and so I keep coming. Brothers and sisters, this is not what we want. This is pretend. Not to jump on my hobby horse, but to come back to the hobby horse. It's pretend. There's a lot less risk involved. A lot less effort involved. At times you will think it's easier. But it won't matter. It's not real. There's only, there's only one option for the believers. And Paul is saying, listen, here's the one thing. Live your life as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and stay together. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unite and fight together. Teens, those of you that are in school and facing the pressure of the world, there will be so much temptation to just slip by with the minimum. You're not sure want to, you, you want to make yourself feel awkward with the world around you and to actually take risks that your, that your friends would realize you're a Christian and that to be on Team Jesus makes you a little weird in this world today. It just does. And yet I'm telling you, if, if you try to slip by with the bare minimum, your life will be filled with heartache. It's not just true for teens. It's true even for adults that, that, that there is enough suffering in life even for Christians who are living for Christ. So make sure it's worth it. Make sure it's, it's the kind of suffering that Paul says is granted to us. We don't want the suffering that is filled through the consequences of sin. I'd rather have the suffering that comes from spreading a message that is eternally worth it and fighting to keep that gospel message advancing in the community around us. How do we stay united? How do we fight together for the faith of the gospel? That's part of what he's going to go into next. As he says, listen, in chapter 2, you need to have the mind of Christ. You need to look not only to your own interests, 
but to the interests of those around you. And that's what then took us up to the verses we studied last week where he says, here's what Christ did. He lowered himself and came to this earth. Though he was in the very form of God, he did not count it robbery to be equal with God. He took on humanity and lowered himself and became willing to die on the death, excuse me, to die a, a death on the cross for our sins. And God raised him to new life so that one day every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that would have gone along in Roman citizenship, at every public gathering, the emperor of Rome would have been worshipped And they would have called out Lord. They would have called out Savior. That's how they elevated the Roman emperor. And so because Philippi was a Roman colony, the exact same word is used in the passage we studied last week when he says, one day every tongue will bow, every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. The Roman emperor is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And live your life worthy of that truth. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to dream big with our lives and what God will do with our lives, what God could do with Shawnee Baptist Church, that he would be glorified as Lord and that we as individuals would see him as Lord, that the surrounding community would see him as Lord. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make this our prayer and our goal because it's what's expected of us as citizens in this new relationship with God that the gospel creates. Paul prays this way in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if God did far more abundantly than we could all ever ask or think? For his glory in this church and in our lives. May that be true. May we unite and fight together. Father, we come to you and are grateful for who you are as God. We are grateful for the fact that you have given us a relationship with your son through the person of Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross. And he didn't stay dead, but the tomb is empty. And we rejoice in that. And now we need to unite together. We need to strive side by side for this truth because it's worth spreading to the community around us. It's worth spreading to the nations around us. And we know that you can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Please do that, Father, because we can't glorify yourself through this church. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.